I'm covering for um, Dwight Knight. I don't look like him. I don't talk like him. But I pray that God would speak to us from his word. So would you turn with me to Luke chapter 1, verse 1 to 10. That's our passage for today. Uh, 21st of February, if you remember, Billy Graham died being 99 years old. And, and there was this outpouring of, of love. Uh, many people responded by saying of how uh, their lives have been touched by Billy Graham. But there was one article that came out by USA Today which read, Billy Graham's nephew isn't mourning his passing. He's not mourning. He's not sad uh, that Billy Graham passed away. And so when you read a title like that, you feel like, oh oh you know, there's this disgruntled relative somewhere that, uh, that mainstream media has uh, found, and they want to discredit, as it were, the legacy of Billy Graham. But as you read the article, you realized that the opposite was true. Uh, Daryl Graham, who was the son of Billy Graham's brother, was saying this about Billy Graham, who he called Uncle Billy, he said he was the same person in private as he was in public. Uh, people who came to him on TV or during one of those crusades might think that there's no way that he could be so good and straightforward in real life, but he was. He was meek and he was honest and he was pure. I want you to understand this is nothing about him being perfect, but about having a testimony that really honored God. We live in times where the credibility of the evangelical Christian is threatened both from inside and from the outside. George Berner, in his uh, commenting on a survey, he writes, every day the church is becoming more like the world it's seeking to change. So there's problem inside, there's controversies, there, is, uh, uh, there are scandals that are happening on the inside, and then there is this onslaught from the outside. I'm not sure whether you came across this article that was posted uh, by the pastors of uh, Cast the Fire. It seems uh, Justin Trudeau, in talking to them, said that um, Christians are the worst part of Canadian society. Now, What's unfortunate about it is I think the most world, uh, most of the world think what Justin said is Trudeau. I practiced that, and I, I <laughs> good thing that he caught it. But, but, but the question is this, right? The question is this. I think we want to ask this question to, to, to ourselves. What is it that, how is it that our lives could be God-honoring? How is it that we could be a good testimony in the society that God has called us to? How is it? that we respond to the Great Commission? How do we live our lives in the neighborhood? And, and all of these questions is essential because, you know, if we don't ask those hard questions, then I think we would miss the entire uh, purpose, as it were, of why God has kept us here as Christians. And so... What I'd like to do is from this passage that we looked at from 
uh, from Luke chapter 7, these 10 verses that we looked at from the life of the centurion. As you look through his life, there are five principles. There are five things that we can establish. And based on that, we ask five questions. And those five questions could be our checklist, as it were, to say, how is it that we live this godly life? How is it that we can live a life which is credible, which is, which is integrous, that the, those in the world as we reminded in uh, we reminded in Matthew chapter 5 verse 10 which says that they will see your good works and glorify your father in heaven all right so principle 1 verse 2 somebody can read verse 2 for me that'll be great verse 2 had a servant and he was highly valued by him. So principle number one, what he thinks about others. Principle one is what you think about others. What a man is, is recognized by what he thinks of others. Now I want you to understand that he not just cared for the servant, but he highly valued him. And you, you got to understand this. This is Roman society. This is a slave. This is a bond slave. A bond slave is only as good as uh, one who can work, who is uh, healthy. Bond slaves are property. Nobody really cared for them as person. But here we have the centurion. He, uh, he, of him it says that he highly valued this servant. So principle one is what? What do you think of others? what he thought about this, all right? So remember that. First principle is that. Now, we live in a very individualistic society, do we not? Like, you know, it's, it's, it's about us. We, we really don't think much about community and much about sharing. It's about privacy. It's about individuality. And to that world, this is a great message to have because um, R. Kent Hughes, I mean, he's written this book, The Disciplines of a Godly Man. In that, he writes about uh, what we have, what's called the John Wayne delusion. A John Wayne delusion. You've heard of who John Wayne is. Okay, don't act like you didn't. But John Wayne delusion is this. He says, if you look at your architecture, our houses, the main part of the house is a two-car garage. And then you enter in, our dining rooms are small, our living rooms are small, our kitchens are even smaller because entertainment no more is priority. Family time is no more priority. And then he goes on to say, the front lawn is our moat, our driveway is a drawbridge, and our garage door is our fortress door. We are, we are complete and isolated, or are we completely isolated? We're complete. We, we, we've got it all. And we've got this good privacy. We have this no solicitation board on our, on our door. Uh, but are we completely isolated? I ask you this question. When was the last time you saw your neighbors? I know we're coming out of, uh, out of winter. Uh, we, get out of the drive, we, we get out of the garage, close the uh, door behind us, and we've gone in, and we haven't seen our neighbors in these past six months. And, uh, and let alone even talk to them. How then are we to live in this world where we are supposed to have this community, to have this conversation with the, 
with the world. And so, so what Ken Hughes is saying is we have what's called the John Wayne delusion. Real men don't need other people. You know, men don't, you know, we have this idea that real men, I don't need anybody. I got it all. So how do you, how do you influence? And I guess in some sense, we have probably confused what is insulation with isolation. We are to be insulated from the world, the effects of the world, the worldview as it were. We, 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 we're not to be influenced by them, but we're not to be isolated from them. We are supposed to, to influence them, Jeremiah 15, 17. We, we have confused, I guess, lifestyle with li- living itself. Lifestyles might be different, but living in community essential. What do we think? Of others. So John Stott had this to say. Listen to this. This is beautiful. John Stott says, God intends for us to penetrate the world. Christian salt has no business to remain snugly in elegant little ecclesiastical salt cellars. Our place is to be rubbed into the secular community as salt is rubbed into meat to stop it from going bad. But when the society does go bad, we Christians tend to throw up our hands in pious horror and reproach in non-Christian world, but should we not rather reproach ourselves? One can hardly blame unsalted meat for going bad. It cannot do anything else. And the real question to ask is where is the salt? How do we treat someone else? How do, how do we relate with someone else? Are we, are we for ourselves? Or are we for someone else? And so right off the bat, the centurion is reminding us that thinking about others is a Christian business. Philippians chapter 2 verse 4 says that I would esteem the other better than myself. That I would not consider just my own business. Yeah, true, I have to take care of my business, my family and all of that. But not just mine, but that I would also consider those of the other. So the question I ask myself, and the question that we all have to ask is, what do we think about others? What do we think about the truant neighbor? What do we think about the stressed out colleague, the hypochondriac friend, the ill-mannered server, uh, the, the ill-mannered waiter, sorry, in the restaurant? That's my pet, pay, pet peeve. But what do I, how, how do I treat that person? I had a problem with my neighbor about 10 years ago for just absolutely no reason. And God convicted my heart and says, is that how you say you love your neighbor? I had this going back and forth, and I said, Lord, you, you, you let this neighbor be on the driveway when I get up to go to work the next day, and then I'll go say sorry to him. And God did answer that prayer. The neighbor was there, but I made it a point to go all, all around and miss him because my heart was still hard. But I'm thankful. I'm thankful, not because of me, but because of the grace of God working in me that through that 10 years now, now we are good friends. We exchange uh, uh, food and, you know, uh, wishes and and, and there's much grace. But I, I recognize this, that naturally it doesn't happen. And so we ask ourselves this one question, how do we treat the other person? What do we think of the other person? Or are we so full of ourselves?
Second principle. Uh, the first principle is what I think about this. The second principle is what others think of me. In verse 4, if somebody can read verse 4. He is worthy to have you do this for him, what others think of him. You see, I want you to realize that these are the elders of the Jews talking about their potential aggressor because the Romans were aggressors in that land. And he is the centurion. He is like the ruler in that region, if you may. And the elders of the Jew have this opinion of him. That is just a phenomenal uh, uh, credit, if you would. Or attestation. Uh, and I was just saying, see, look, look, look at the, this is, I would say, is like a six degree separation, six degrees of separation, but on a different way, all right? So you have these elders of the Jews, then you have the Jews, then you have the Samaritans, you have the Gentiles, and you have the Romans, the Roman ruler. Uh, so between the elders and the Roman ruler is already six, and now this is the Roman ruler's slave, that these elders are coming and petitioning Jesus Christ. Wow, I think about that centurion. Well, that's a very powerful lesson. And they come and they earnestly plead with Jesus on his behalf. Oh, the question I have to ask myself is, what do people think of me? What do people think of you? See, because we live in a world, again, we, we live in a world where we don't care what others think about us. I don't care what people think of me. I mean, we've heard that being said. We've heard Christians say that. We even sometimes quote a Bible verse from that. I mean, there are multiple verses, but let me give you one from Galatians chapter 1, verse 10. This is what it says. If I were trying to please men, I would not be a bond servant of Christ. And you say, yeah, I don't want to please men. But then we don't look at Romans 15, 2, 15, 1 and 2, which is what Paul says again. He says, now we who are strong ought not just to please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good, for his edification. So, hey, Paul is saying there are certain things that he's not going to be caught up in trying to please men. But there's also this, that we give in to this neighbor and I try and please him. So the, the question then is, which is it? Do I do this or do I do that? And I, th I believe, and I, my understanding, is that we probably have confused testimony with approval. Testimony is that I live my life in such a way that God is honored. That I interact with my neighbors in such a way that God is honored. It's about pleasing God in a way that, that in my interactions with the society and with others. But approval in its own sense is that I do life in such a way that, that the people are pleased with me. I'm seeking their approval. And Paul makes that distinction that, that our lives, we saw in Matthew 5, 8, that when, when, the, when the world sees our good works, that they will glorify not us, but they will glorify our Father in heaven. That's important to know. So what's the first principle? What he thinks of others. The second principle? What others think of you. All right? So, so in this testimony and this approval, I think the one question we have to ask is, is God, be, is God glorified? Right? And so what others think of you is not for yourself, is if it brings glory to God. 
All right, so you got two things. Let me, let me read to you a quote by Dave, David Wilkerson. I'm not sure whether you've read the book, Cross on the Switchblade. Cross on the Switchblade is about Nikki Cruz and how David Wilkerson had gone into, uh, into New York and, he, uh, and there is uh, this gang that he you know, starts to share the gospel and, and Nikki Cruz is the leader of this gang. He becomes a Christian. That's a very powerful story. Grab it, read it. It's very edifying. And he says, this. If I'm not Christ-like at, at heart, if I'm not becoming noticeably more like him, then I have totally missed God's purpose for my life. It doesn't matter what I accomplish for his kingdom. I, if I miss this one purpose, I have lived, I've preached, and yes, I've striven in vain. And, and so when people look at me, when people look at you, who are they reminded of? Are they reminded of Christ? Because hear me in this, hear me in this. Listen, because as his children, what people think of us is, is woven deeply with what they think about your God, what they think about your Heavenly Father. And so we look at our testimony. As someone said, we're not to merely have a revelation of Christ, but also to have the reflection of him. We might know God's word, but that knowledge of God's word would work in our hearts in such a way that Christ would be reflected in our lives. And so for all, this, we, all those who we meet for the rest of this week, the rest of, the rest of our lives, may we be the reflection of Christ to the world. So principle one is what? What others think of you. Or what you think of others, sorry. Principle two, what others think of you. And the third one, what he thinks of himself. Verse six, somebody can read verse six. What he thinks of himself. Right. So the centurion does not go to Jesus for his servant. He sends the elders of the Jews. And not because he thought he was great, but he understood Jesus Christ to be infinitely more. And I, I, I want you to understand this, you see, because uh, consider the centurion. Think about the centurion. Now, the centurion is somebody, the word centurion comes from the century, where we get a word century from, a hundred. He's got a hundred soldiers. Now, history might tell you the numbers might vary between 80 and 100, which is okay. We're not, you know, but he's got people under him, 80 soldiers, he could have done one thing. He could have just had all his 80 soldiers line up and says, let's go and meet Jesus. Not because I want, you know, not in, not in a passive-aggressive way to show that I've got power, but to say I want to show you honor in that sense. But he doesn't approach him with the might of his, of his Roman uh, army, but he comes through this, through this uh, elders of the Jews. It's, I, I, I believe it's a good sign of his humility, a good sign of his humility. You see, we, we, we uh, live, right? We live in a time where uh, 
uh, self-image and self-esteem and self-worth and you know, all of that is so important that humility is not a celebrated virtue. We don't think much about humility. We don't think those who are humble are, are um, to be considered. Well, that's where the Christian message gets very difficult to sell, if you would, if, if I use the word sell. Because it's only through the Spirit of God. If we were to go and tell the Christian message saying that you yourself has to be crucified yourself. You, 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 who you are has to be crucified. You have to come to Christ in that brokenness. They don't understand this except through the Holy Spirit. But the, the confession of the bankruptcy of our soul is what pleases God. We were reminding ourselves from the Sermon on the Mount that blessed are the poor in the spirit, for they will see the kingdom of God. And so we, uh, we come in a way to say that not of us is Jesus Christ. The centurion says that, Lord, even though we don't read that, he recognizes not the might of his army, but the petition that he brings through the elders of the Jews. And I, I get a sense for myself, and, and you, you might want to cross-examine yourself. We who know the truth that, that it is Christ alone who can, who can complete us, who can make us an you know, answer, who is the answer to every issue and problem that we have. Because the world is seeking. world wants to know. world, world has tried, but it's failed. It, it wants to know, and yet we as Christians who know have either forgotten or we have remained silent about Jesus Christ. And somehow this centurion knows and he senses he sends the elders of the Jews to petition for him. The world needs to know that even though you might be, you might be everything, you're really nothing before God. And even if you're nothing, you can be the child of God. There's the story that I came across by Tony Campolo in his book, It's Friday, But Sunday's Coming. He talks about this uh, 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 incident that happened in a restaurant. This old man approaches this, this tourist who's come to Tennessee. And he starts to have this conversation. And he says, this old man is telling the tourist, he says, I'm an illegitimate child. Growing up, those many years ago, it was the worst thing. Nobody would look at me. Nobody wanted to talk to me. I didn't want to go to church. But then sometimes, uh, then there was this desire, at least God might be something for me. So I started going to church, but I would go in late and leave early so that nobody, I didn't have to talk to anybody. Nobody would, nobody would question me or ask me things. But one Sunday, he says, as he was leaving, he, he felt this arm on my shoulder. And he turns around and he sees that it's the preacher. He says, hey, I know you from somewhere. I know you, you resemble, I, I can tell you, you, you resemble somebody. You look like your dad. 
And he says, this old man says, I froze, I died on the inside. But the preacher went on to say, you look like your heavenly father, aren't you his child? And that, he says, was so assuring for this, for this man, for this old man, to recognize that God was his father and that he could be called his child. And having said this, this old man leaves the, uh, the, the couple, the, the tourist. And the waiter comes in and asks the tourist, did, did you know who you were talking to? That is Ben Hooper, the two-term two governor of Tennessee. He had understood what he can be in Jesus Christ. That none of his accomplishment or lack of it is going to take away from what we can be in Jesus Christ. So the first thing is what we think of others. The second is what others think of you. The third is what he think of himself. Let's look at the fourth one. The fourth one is in verse 6, what he thinks of God. Verse 6, if somebody can read that. Right, just say the word, the centurion. He says, listen, 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 don't, don't, don't bother, Lord Jesus. Don't come into my house. I'm not worthy. He sends friends now to, with this message. And then he goes on to say, this is the amazing part. He says, listen, I, I know what it means. I can tell the soldier to go, and he goes, and I tell the other one to come, and he comes. I understand the power of word. Like, I just have to say it. And I just got only 80 or 100 people. I'm just a centurion, but you are much more. You just have to say it. And the power of your word is much greater than mine. You don't have to bother to come into my unworthy roof, under my unworthy roof. We probably, the centurion fully didn't understand who the Lord Jesus Christ is. Hear me on this, Okay. I don't think he probably knew that he is the king of kings, the lord of lords, come down as man. I don't think he knew him as the god of the universe who's come down as man. But what he knew, what little he knew, he acted on. That's the challenge for us. You see, we, we know about a god, and the question then is, do we, do we act on it? Do we take him at his word? The one who, with his word, he made the universe. And he gives us his word, his promises. Will we be willing to take him at his word? That's a good question. See, A.W. Tozer in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy. That's another book if you can get hold of and read. The Knowledge of the Holy. It says the history of mankind will probably show that no people have ever risen above its religion. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. You see, who you think your God is shapes your mindset, it strengthens your resolve, and it stills our soul. Who your God is is what you will become. Not God's, but a reflection of. And we got the privilege of reflecting that of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Do you really know your God? 
the prayer of Paul from Ephesians chapter 1 verse 17 is this, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ and the Father of glory may give to you the spirit of <coughs> wisdom and no revelation in the knowledge of him. Paul is praying to the Ephesian church that the Father of Father in heaven would give that spirit of knowledge and revelation so that they would know about this person called Jesus Christ. What a, what a prayer. And I pray for all of us that that prayer would be answered. So first principle is what? What he thinks of others. What's the second principle? What, he, what others think of him. What's the third principle? What he thinks of himself. And the fourth principle? What he thinks of God. Now the fifth one is the most important question. What God thinks of you. And if you'll read with me in verse 9. What God thinks of him in verse 9. You see, this is the, the answer to this question makes for eternal difference. It doesn't matter what you think about God. It doesn't matter whether you think God exists or doesn't exist. And we have this debate going on and on. But what God thinks of you is paramountly important and makes for our eternal difference. And I want to give you some verses from the Bible which says that God treats you differently based on how you, re you relate to him. Now that might sound scandalous, but let me give you some verses. First is the rebellious sinner, the one who rebels continuously and actively rejects Jesus Christ. And Psalm 7 and 11, it says, God is an honest judge. He is angry with the wicked every day. Romans chapter 2 verse 5 says, but because of your stubbornness and because of your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be re revealed the rebellious sinner. But then you have the repentant sinner. The repentant sinner, I'm going to read just 1 John 1, 19. There are other verses, 1, 9, sorry. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just, and he'll forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Rebellious sinner, then you have the repentant sinner. And third, I want you to think of this, this rejoicing saint. The rejoicing saint. Luke 15, 10, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents, joining in with the joy that this sinner enjoys because of his forgiven sins. Psalm 35, 9. Now you have this, this rebellious sinner, you have the repentant sinner, you have the rejoicing saint, and lastly, you have the redeemed child, the redeemed child. You see, the, there is this uh, uh, article that I was reading by Jenny. Jenny the Jewel, she calls herself. She was born uh, uh, with um, Down syndrome. She was born, born with Down syndrome. And in her article, What God Says About Me, she writes this. She says, you know, when I was to go to school, I would be 
uh, bullied. I'll be, you know, called names. And every day she was just coming back home and she'd be crying. Her mother would hold her and, you know, try to soothe her. And by it wasn't really helping. So one day the mother challenged her and says, listen, I want you to read the Bible and I'll give you $5,000 if you can come up in the Bible where it says that you're a mistake. Because that was what she was feeling, that she was a mistake. And so her mother challenged her, and so she starts to read the Bible. She never got a 5,000, but she recognized what the Bible is saying, that God never treats us as a mistake, that we are made in the image of God himself. The redeemed child. And if you are, I don't know where you are, are you the rebellious sinner or in between somewhere, but the only way this rebellious sinner can become this redeemed child is through the cross. It's because of the cross, it's because of the cross, it's because of the cross that we can be the redeemed child of God, that our sins can be forgiven, the assurance that we have, and the confidence that we are his child. And that that what God thinks of us is extremely, extremely important. You see, so let me, let, me, let me quickly conclude what happens, right? So let me just first ask you what the five questions are that you could ask. What's the first, uh, first principle, the five principles? What's the first one? What he thinks of others. The second one, what others think of you. And the third one, what he thinks of himself. The fourth one, what he thinks of God. And the fifth one, what God thinks of you. You see, so... This is, this is about Christian life. This is about spiritual maturity. This is about growth. And so we, we tend to think that, hey, this is the way to do it, right? I mean, I attend more church meetings. I, I read and I pray. And we, we get into the spiritual disciplines. And I, I, I get it. I, I understand that that is important. That's necessary. You see, uh, it's Henry Newman who says it so beautifully. He, he, he brings in this difference between discipleship and discipline discipleship and discipline and he says this okay so if it's discipline without discipleship it is like i'm practicing for the marathon but i never run the marathon if it is discipleship without discipline it's like i'm running the marathon but i'd never practice for it and never do you think would ever would be ever be able to do that 28 kilometers both of them have to go together but then there is a paramount difference between discipline in sports and discipline in the spiritual life. Because in, in sports, you discipline yourself because you want to master your body. You want to do what, what the body doesn't do naturally. And you, you're pushing and, and you're trying to, uh, to push the limits as it were. You want to master the body. That is what sports discipline is all about. But a spiritual discipline is not about your body, but about God mastering you it's not about you mastering yourself and so to say god oh lord i want to be what you want me to be i want to lord live a life that brings you honor that my life would be a testimony that when they look at me, when they see what I do, they are able to glorify you, not for my own personal approval, but that God in heaven, but God in heaven would be glorified. And in seeking that, these five questions would be a good 
mix, a good thing to mix and to say, uh, this is how I can check myself. This is how I can test myself. This is how I can see how and what is it that God wants me to do. And my prayer, my prayer is this. What we read of that, of the Lord Jesus Christ saying for, about the centurion, he says, I tell you, not even in Israel, in verse 9, have I found such faith. And, um, and then when those who had returned to the house, they found the servant well. They haven't found such faith. My prayer for all of us is just that. That as, we, as they consider our lives, they would say, I haven't found such faith. I haven't found such life that reflects Christ. And that would be said of us on this, in this world by the world that's looking at us. But then when we get up to heaven, that God would say, well done, good and faithful servant. Father God, that is our plea this morning, this afternoon. Would you speak, would you use our lives, Lord? You gave us life and this is yours. And we pray, we pray, we pray that our lives would be lived in a way that brings you glory. There's, the purpose itself is all gone and lost if, if that does not happen. Would you be gracious, Lord? Would you break in us the idols? Would you break in us the resistance, the rebellion, the, the, all of those that keeps us away from being this rejoicing, redeemed child? May, may our lives bring you joy through the Lord Jesus Christ. And this I pray, Lord, for all those who are here. And Lord, if there's any among us who doesn't know you or they have deceived themselves that they know you, we pray that the Spirit of God would grip their hearts. Let them know, let them know, Lord, the deceptiveness of, the, of sin, that the sin can be, can be so dangerous, eternally dangerous, that, it, that it, 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 it puts away the soul forever from God. And may that not ever happen. And so the conviction of your Holy Spirit in our lives, Lord, to show that Christ alone is the way. We thank you. We love you. We ask all this in the name of your begotten Son, who is our Lord and our Savior. And all God's people said, Amen.